You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. So welcome to All The Things. This is the show where we try not to have technical difficulties and we broadcast live from our living room and things happen sometimes. Yes, and... (laughs) Some of those things are technical difficulties. I am Monique Dusan. I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And we have finally made it to <laughs> Saturday. We finally made it to our show. We are glad that you are here. What a mess. Yes. You want to jump right in? Yeah. So I want to just let everyone know how they can interact with us and our guest. Um, you can go to the chat box there on YouTube on my Theology Mom page, and uh, you will be able to talk to us we see our friend jane pantig is, hi jane is there our uh oh rhyme his songs is yes, checking hey. in i haven't seen you in a few weeks our friend amy davis is there our friend allison is there kimba kimba is there Thank laura you. hartley thanks for all your prayers guys we really appreciate it yes and we are so excited to talk tonight with uh jim wallace and um we're gonna just get right into it because even though there's a pandemic going on, we're sick of talking about the coronavirus. Yes. And even though there's a pandemic, Jesus still rose. (laughs) So, and Easter is not canceled. The resurrection is still true. So we are just going to get right on to it. Yeah. So let's bring in our guest, Jay Warner Wallace. Welcome to the show, Jim. Glad to be here. Glad we finally got it done. We got our technical difficulties figured out. You were so patient. And, uh, we're excited to have you here. Um, you and I have, we've met a couple times. I'm sure you don't remember me. Yep. No, I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, I'm going to reach out to Jim Wallace and he's probably going to say, who is this? But I'm just, we're so thrilled to, to have you here and to talk about Easter because Easter is not canceled and Jesus right. has risen from the dead. So let's talk about something eternal. Yes. Good. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, um, a lot of our viewers are kind of new to the realm of apologetics. And so we want to help them kind of begin to talk about some really foundational things in our faith, because the resurrection is absolutely critical to what we believe. But first, I want to help people get to know Jim a little bit yeah. better. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to Christianity. Well, I mean, a lot of it for me was just not having been raised in a Christian setting as a kid. Um, I had to kind of come to this different way. Uh, I was not familiar with the claims of Christianity beyond the kind of broad kind of claims we recognize from culture. Um, uh, and, and my mom was a kind of a cultural Catholic when I was young and, but I don't know that she could really tell me much about the Bible. We were not Bible readers at our house. As a matter of fact, we didn't, I don't know. I'm sure she had a Bible in the house. I had no Christian friends. Nobody ever invited. The first time I ever stepped foot in an evangelical church for anything was uh, probably like a wedding in my late twenties. And then when I walked in at 35 to sit down and listen to a message for the first time, um, you know, I was pretty much settled in my ways as an, as an atheist. I didn't see any need for God. Uh, and the Christians that I did know, uh, to be honest with you, really could not defend what they believe very well. So I just felt like it was an unthoughtful uh, kind of pie in the sky, hopeful, hopeful thinking, you know, wishful thinking kind of a, 
uh, a system that really was, I was not, not interested in. To be honest with you, I was even worse. I was uh, pretty aggressively antagonistic toward the few Christians I would meet. And I had that been going on for years. Uh, that was just where I was. I had been working in law enforcement for probably about 10 years, almost 10 years at that point, and was working as a detective um, and really didn't have a lot of respect for um, uh, claims that you couldn't be supported with evidence. And the few Christians I did know at work, when I asked them to give me some evidence to support their claims, they weren't, they weren't able to do that. So I just felt like this was not worth my time. And, and it wasn't like I was antagonistic. You know, a friend of mine is, is Lee Strobel. And, and if you know Lee's story, Case for Christ, you know that, that Lee would tell you that his wife, Leslie, became a Christian. And then he was kind of found himself trying to prove it wrong. And that was not my situation at all. This was not worth my time. I was like, well, who would try to who would try to prove that the that the Easter Bunny is isn't real? Who does that? Nobody. This, this is a stupid claim that doesn't need my my time and effort. That's how little I thought of it. And so I wasn't really like I was all that antagonistic. Uh, I just felt like it was silly. Um, but but my wife thought you know she was raised in a different setting in which I think she was far more open. Uh, and and believed that there was a God. But in the 18 years we were together at that time, I can tell you, we never really talked about those issues because I think she probably f figured out she knew where I, I stood. And, um, and but I was willing to go to church if she wanted to go. And that's really what got me in church the first time was her wanting to go. And uh, the preacher was uh, skillful enough to know that he had a lot of unbelievers in that room. And he pitched Jesus in a way that I could catch him. He just kind of made the claim that he was a, a, an ancient sage, a, a, the wisest, smartest person who ever lived. And that was enough to provoke me to buy a Bible. And that's really how I, I got started investigating the claims of Christianity. Wow, that's so interesting. I was um, listening to a talk you did I was listening on YouTube and yeah. um, I was listening to, you know, like your walk and journey in becoming a Christian. I was just like, wow. And um, you mentioned like your father hadn't read your book and like all these things. And I was just like, wow, what what a story that is. And then thinking about like cold case detective and mm -hmm. homicide. And I just have so many questions about that all by itself. But I'm wondering, like, what was it um, in your work as a cold case detective that you put with apologetics like how did how do you connect that to, how did you connect your your homicide work with apologetics well so you know back in those days uh this is now you know i, I was 35 i'm 58 now um i don't think i really thought I, I didn't know anything about apologetics that, that the word was foreign to me i mean i was just just i did nothing about theology nothing about i mean i just saw it as a claim this this book when I opened up the New Testament to see what the how smart Jesus was and to figure out, well, you know, what is it about Jesus that he said that this pastor thinks is so darn smart? So I'm reading through the Gospels to get the words of Jesus and, and realizing that these accounts are written by people in an order, in a chronological order, uh, as if they want me to believe this stuff actually happened. You know, Matthew and John are, are books that are claimed to be written by eyewitnesses. Luke says he's writing from the accounts he got from eyewitnesses. He was an, uh, an acquaintance of Paul in the book of Acts. And Mark, according to early church history, he's writing at the feet of Peter. Well, I, I mean, are you telling me that these are actually accounts? Now, that's something I could test because those are what eyewitness accounts are. And in cold cases, you're dealing with eyewitness accounts from, you know, 30 to 50 years ago. Um, in which you don't have access to people anymore. You don't have access to the person who made the claim. You don't have access to the person who wrote the report 30 years ago with the guy who made the claim or the gal who made the claim. So, so it's very similar to investigating the claims related to Christianity in the sense that 
um, you're trying to reconstruct uh, the stories. And why should I trust that any of this stuff they're telling me is reliable? Um, this is the dilemma you face in every cold case. And, and so I wasn't like, like thinking to myself, wow, I got the opportunity to apply these really cool uh, detective techniques to this claim. And no, I just thought, look, if you're going to be sitting here every week because Susie wants to come to church, I want to know, is this, you know, what I might as well just do. And I'll tell you, as soon as I read those accounts, the Gospels, I was interested. And I was interested in my mind because there were things about the accounts compression of time, expansion of time, use of certain pronouns, use of, we're looking for things in forensic statement analysis that'll tell us if a witness or a suspect is being deceptive. These are deception indicators. So I, I, I was trained to do this as a discipline. And so I couldn't help but read those accounts and look for those kinds of things. You know, I'll, what, if, if, are you really looking at any word that is not necessary? Adjectives and adverbs are never necessary. They're optional words. So optional words tell you a lot about whether someone's being deceptive or not. These use of pronouns or her use of pronouns, compressing time, skipping a lot of detail, or expanding time, sticking in a lot of detail. What is going on there? Why are they doing that in our story? Are they trying to cover something or are they trying to skip over something? You're looking for these kinds of things. The use of tense, uh, past tense, present tense. Do I accidentally slip back and forth and reveal something that, you know, uh, tells me where, where that guy really was at the time? These are things that I'm looking for in eyewitness statements. I'm also looking for these in suspect statements, so I couldn't help but look for them in the gospel statements. And those were the things that provoked me to say, you know what, I'm going to sit down with these and just pick them apart with forensic statement analysis, and let's just see how far I can go with this. And I, I started to do it. And the more I started to do it, the more interested I was in doing it. You know, it's, it's, it's great because at work, I was doing this almost on a daily basis with witnesses and suspects. And then I come home and I get to do it almost on a daily basis with the gospels. So it was fun. Man, kind of makes me wonder, like, I don't know if you have kids, but they couldn't get away with anything like that. My goodness. <laughs> well, yeah, it is true that, and you can listen, this is as much a, an art as it is a discipline. So, so you, it's not like, you know, you get, you have to make inferences. You start to notice things. And then you have to make an inference from those things you notice. Now, your inference can be wrong because all of us can make, uh, in, you know, can make errant inferences. But you do start what you're looking for are the things that are, are um, you want to hear the words that no one's saying. But they're, they're there. But they're not saying it. And you want to hear those words. And you want to read those lines that are kind of hidden, you know, reading between the lines, that idea we always talk about. So that's what you're really doing with these kinds of things. And you're right. You know, my, my, I think that this is, you can't help but do this. And I've got a, a friend who's a, a, a psychopathologist, basically. She, she's looking at this linguistically. So she's, she, she's like me. We'll, we'll watch press conferences. And you can tell on a press conference when someone's lying. Because they're doing all the things they do in forensic statement analysis to avoid telling the truth. They're deception indicators. And so you can't help but watch TV and watch press conferences and watch statements that people make where they're reading from a written statement, you know, and you're thinking, really? Okay, I can see, like, if I, had any, if I could make some follow-up questions, I would tell you exactly what I would ask next because I can tell you where their problems are in the statement. And this is true with your kids. It's true with your friends. It can go a little bit too far, right? But, yeah, you do have a tendency to do it. Wow. So as you are reading through the Gospels, Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about some of the features that you noticed that gave you a tip off of like, hey, I think these are actual eyewitnesses and not just to use the words of Peter cleverly invented tales. Like, sure. tell us a little bit more. Maybe you can give us a few examples. Yeah, well, I can tell you that that uh, eyewitnesses never agree. 
and and so that's one thing that was helpful is the level of disagreement between the gospels seemed to me to be very similar to the level of disagreement that I typically see between a set of eyewitnesses. Now that's something you cannot quantify. So it's not like I would say, well, you know, eyewitnesses are going to disagree fourteen point seven percent. So I can figure out a way to tell if this state these statements are disagreeing by fourteen point seven percent. It doesn't work that way. It's really intuitive, right? You 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 get used to talking to eyewitnesses. And then you get used to seeing the level at which they disagree and you get comfortable with that. The first thing I ask for when someone calls me out in the middle of the night is to have the officers who are on scene separate the eyewitnesses, because if you don't separate eyewitnesses, they start to give you the same story because they've had an hour to talk about it. And what you really want is each person's unique perspective, because although there'll be apparent contradictions between all the eyewitnesses, and these are the things that defense attorneys just love to make a big deal about in trial. But you know that in the end, these are all going to come together like a puzzle, and you're going to be able to reconcile those differences. So there's no point in you know, getting all uptight about it. Just spend the time to figure out why this person says it this way, and that person seeing the exact same thing says it slightly differently. And so when I saw that these, there were no, these obvious differences between the gospel accounts related to almost any aspect of the gospels, um, related to the passion accounts, for example, um, you'll see differences between how each writer talks about those things. Now, it seems to me if I wanted to be careful and, and craft a, a clever lie, I would probably try to eliminate some of the things that later on people are going to say, hey, this can't be true because that guy never even says anything about that. And I, and I think what you see, the texture you see between the gospel accounts, that struck me as being very genuine, at least a place to start. This does not mean that that alone would convince me they're true, of course. But it gave me confidence to start that I could actually now test these. There's, there's four categories of the tests we do for eyewitnesses. And I will tell you, just to make it brief for you guys, that the, the thing that was the most powerful for me is, look, if you're going to lie about any claim, the best thing you can do is wait till anyone who knows the truth is out of the system, is gone, is dead, is moved away, whatever. If you're going to lie in the presence of people who know better, who know what the truth is, that's very difficult. So a lot of times skeptics will say, and you hear this all the time on Twitter, right? They'll say, oh yeah, the gospels were written a hundred years after the fact. Well, if that's the case, then I think you could lie very easily because the people who would have known Jesus of Nazareth, they'd all be dead. So they wouldn't be around to say that's a lie. <laughs> but, but that's what I needed to know. I needed to know, were those accounts written early enough to number one, have been written by eyewitnesses or number two, to have been written in the presence of those who would know better. So the early dating was going to be important to me. If these aren't early enough, I'm out. Before, there's no point in even trying to test them. They cannot be eyewitness accounts if they're written by people 100 years after the fact. So I wanted to know how early they were written. I think there's good, there's good reason to believe these accounts are very early, well early enough within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. So that when Paul says something like in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says that to the Corinthian church, he says there are over you know, 500 of the brethren who witnessed the resurrected Christ on the same day who were still alive, most of whom were still alive, but some have fallen asleep, that you could actually talk to. You could, you could ask them, what did they see? 
And this is part of the creed that Paul talks about, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brethren, right? At one time, most of them remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to someone untimely born, he appeared to me also. Okay, well, there's 500 people out there. That's a gutsy claim to make. And by the way, that document he's making it in, a skeptic like Bart Ehrman will agree, that's written in the early 50s. Already, it's within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. He's writing it within the lifetime of eyewitnesses, and he's telling people that there are 500 still alive who could say more about the risen Christ. If that's not true, that's a real gamble, right? Because you're thinking, okay, I'm just going to make this lie. I'm just going to hope that no one chases it down. Nobody takes me up on it. Or you're just saying something that's still factually true 20 years after the event. After the event, And that would be the case. And by the way, you might think, well, 20 years is a long gap. How can you trust anything anyone would say 20 years later? Well, you can trust it uh, because all memories are not created equally. And uh, special events are memorable events. So while I can't tell you every, for example, every um, uh Valentine's Day I've had with my wife, I can tell you the one that occurred in 1988, because that's the day we got married. That Valentine's Day is different than the others. And if you're somebody who goes out fishing every day, and you just don't know what the fishing was like on, in 1988, but on one day, while you were fishing, a dude walked up to you on the water, you would remember that day. That day's a different kind of fishing day. And those things will stick out in your mind. This is, by the way, the case in every cold case. Our witnesses are going to be attacked by the defense. They're going to say, that was 30 years ago. How can you be so sure? Well, you know why? Because I've only seen one murder. And that was it. And I'll never forget it. It's kind of like, saw where the were you of events. when you, the, you heard about the Twin Towers falling? You, mm -hmm. you remember that. It, it's because it's such a... A, a memorable event. Yeah, yeah, a unique moment yeah, in you time. Know where you that were. was about 20 years ago. Right. So yeah, good point. And so these things, people, we have an intuitive sense and that's why we instruct juries in a way that helps them to understand how this works. And, and in the end, I think they, they recognize that not every memory is created equal. So when you, when you would read the gospels, then it didn't trouble you that sometimes the gospel writers would record or record certain parables at this time. And then another gospel writer would include the parables in a different order or that, there was there was different um, details of things um, that that to you kind of seemed consistent with what you knew about eyewitness accounts, that there should be some differences in perspective. Right. Well, it's not as though they didn't tell us this was coming. It's not as though John didn't say, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff that I could have written about that I didn't write about that would fill up more books than I can possibly you know, hold. Right. It's not like they didn't tell us in advance that there was some, some stuff they just didn't record. And, and I get that. Right. And so, for example, you will see the views forensic statement analysis that one of the optional words that Luke uses in the first chapter of his gospel is he says that he is writing for Theophilus an orderly account most excellent Theophilus. Well, why do you need to say it's orderly? That word in the Greek means correct chronological order. If you're writing an account for someone who's important, he's most excellent Theophilus. Well, wouldn't you assume that it's in the correct chronological? What kind of a historical account would you be writing if it's not in the correct chronological order? And that's what the word means. Remember the optional words, 
He could have just said account. No, he said, correct, orderly account. Orderly, in the right order. Well, the only reason why you might say that would be if there's another account that's out there that's not in the correct order. And if you compare Mark's account to Luke's account, you will see that some of the events that Luke records come directly from Mark's account, but they're not in the same order. Now, he says that he was recording uh, what the witnesses had passed down. So it's clear that he's going to be taking other people's data and he's putting it in his account. Remember, Luke did not know Jesus. Luke knew Paul later on in the book of Acts. He's going back and assembling for Theophilus the account of Jesus from eyewitnesses. But interestingly, he's got his in a slightly different order than Mark. Well, if you do some research on this, you'll see that Papias is a bishop in the first century. And Papias says that Mark is recording the details given to him by Peter in Rome. But Mark's account, according to Papias, is accurate, if not orderly. And he uses the same word. Now, what we know then is that, that, that Mark's account is meant to kind of give you the events that Jesus not necessarily in the right order, because Peter was not preaching a sermon of history. Peter was preaching in themes, and Mark was recording his, his, his messages. Mm-hmm. And, and now what you have under Luke is Luke is saying, I've got all of Mark's stuff, basically, but I got it in the right order. And sure enough, that explains why you see these differences between these accounts. That's very, by the way, unless you knew up front, if Mark had said, I have got an orderly account, in the same way that Luke says it, well, then you've got a problem. But that's not what Mark does. Mark just jumps in. Mark doesn't even include a birth narrative. He just jumps in. Well, why is he so brief? Because Mark's got a different purpose than Matthew. Mark's got a different purpose than Luke. John doesn't record a birth narrative either. No one's claiming that John, you know, John was clearly aware of the divinity of Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Apart from him, all things that came into being were made through him, right? And apart from him, nothing that came into being was, was, uh, was, was existed at all. So, so think about that for a second. It's clear that John knows about the divinity of Christ, yet he, he leaves out the entire divine birth narrative. So I think that we have to ask ourselves with each eyewitness is, what is the purpose that this, this, this uh, author is, is writing for? And then it will help us to know why he's including some things and why he's leaving other things out. And clearly, Luke was aware of everything that Mark wrote because he quotes from Mark more than any other source, but he doesn't quote all of Mark. Why not? Different purpose. But it's clear he knew what Mark had. He just doesn't include all of it. Okay, well, this, now you start to see this now. Okay, this is a matter of choice, not a matter of error. So then when we look at gospel accounts like of the resurrection and like if there was one angel at the tomb or there were two angels at the tomb, like how do you discuss that? Because a lot of skeptics will say, well, see, you can't believe the Bible because they don't even know if there was one angel or two or who did he talk to first and things like that. Like, how do you address that? Right. Okay. So, you know, there was plenty of time for those for the original chroniclers, the original uh, people who put the canon together, the canonical, the the canonizers, let's say. Uh, There was certainly enough time for them to remove error. They could have excluded certain accounts. They could have done what Tatian did many years later and try to harmonize all four accounts. That wasn't that didn't happen. Instead, they left these differences in place because they knew these differences were not contradictions. They were just variations in perspective. You'll notice in the account where one angel speaks and is recorded, he's there. That, that author is recording the speaking angel. One angel spoke. Two angels were there. One spoke. So you have one account where it records the one angel because that's the one who spoke and the other who records how many are present. If there is, you know, if there are two angels present, there are one. 
So it doesn't, it's not as though there's a contradiction here. But, but what is the purpose? In one of these, the purpose is to record a dialogue. And that's what you have in that scene, a lot of dialogue. And the other is just recording more data. So, so I think that you could look at this. And, and, and by the way, if you think that is a contradiction that would eliminate the reliability of an eyewitness, well, then I've never had a cold case in which I have ever had any reliable eyewitnesses because the level of variation I see is far more severe than that. So how do we overcome that? Well, it's, it's because you understand that people have certain perspectives. They pin on certain things. I've had guys who will not come off the gun. For whatever reason, they're just gun nuts. So when a robbery occurs, all they want to talk about is how he waved the gun around. Then he put the gun in his face. You know, he had his finger in the trigger guard. He was going to shoot that lady. I can tell you, man, that, that the hammer was, pat, was pulled back. Who sees that kind of stuff? Well, this guy does. Now, the other person can't tell me anything about the gun because that person maybe doesn't have the same interest. Are you telling me the hammer was pulled back or it wasn't pulled? How come this guy says it's pulled back, but you don't? Well, a lot of it is because it's a, what, is, what is the perspective that you have? You know, if you're somebody who likes, uh, I, I often will find someone in my eyewitness set who's got more interest in clothing than the others. And that's the person I'm going to go back to again and again and again to ask questions. Was it a, a shirt that had a loose sleeve or did it have elastic sleeve? Some people will never notice that. You could say, was it a button collar or a T-shirt? And they're like going, I don't know, maybe a T-shirt. How can you not notice the difference between a button collar and a T-shirt? The dude was five feet from you. Now, you can get contradictions in clothing descriptions. But once you find that person who can say to you, well, yeah, I don't happen to own that shirt. I'll bet you got that at Target because I, I got mine at Target. It looked just like mine from Target. Well, now that guy's got some kind of a connection where he's pinning on the shirt and is able to describe it in great detail where others are saying, oh, it's a T-shirt. You know, so these things happen and you just have to understand that, that now the, the bigger question I think is this, if the word of God is inerrant, why would he allow any of this kind of reliable eyewitness variation that we see in any other case? Why would he allow that in there? Wouldn't he assure that everything is, well, honestly, if all these accounts were word for word identical, I think the level of skepticism would be much higher. If God's intention was to bring to us the inerrant word of God that is reliable in a way that we could test it like an eyewitness account and be confident that it's telling us the truth, well, now he's actually delivered accounts that can do that. Because I think in the end, if you thought that there'd be more uh, or less skepticism, rather, because if we had, you know, either one, only one account or four identical accounts, I think there'd be more skepticism. I think what's great about this is that I can actually test it. And once you know something about each author, you understand why. And once you know something about like who the audience is, look, Luke is a doctor who's writing to somebody important. A two-volume text with Luke and the book of Acts, originally as one manuscript. And if you read it through like that, you get a sense of why it's much different than John yeah. and what John's purpose is. So I think it's about, like any other eyewitness, understanding what is the perspective of the eyewitness and who do they, is the audience they're talking to. For example, the same eyewitness, when talking to their sister-in-law about this three days later, will say something different than they'll say to me. Because something about the relationship with the sister-in-law, it's like, oh, yeah, this made me think of that. Then I get a phone call. Yeah, you know what? From the sister-in-law, she, she just remembered this. Well, why didn't they tell me? This is going to look bad now. It's going to look like they're making this stuff up. No, they're not making this stuff up. It's just that who your audience is and what your purpose is often shapes what you say. Very good. I want to ask one more question. And then we're starting to get some questions on the YouTube. Okay. So we'll go to those. And I want to encourage all of you watching right now to just jump on YouTube and and with your questions, and we're going to go to those in just a minute. 
But as you were talking about eyewitnesses, Jim, it struck me that the women were, I have often wondered if they were somewhat unlikely eyewitnesses. Like if I was going to make up the resurrection account and try to think ahead and engage in a conspiracy to found a new religion, I'm not sure I would have had the first eyewitnesses be the women. Well, a couple of things about that. Yeah. A lot has been said about, you know, the unreliability of of women in testimony in the first century. It's not as bad as they, they make it out to be. I mean, women did testify on a number of different events for a number of different reasons. They did, they did typically require a second witness to substantiate their testimony, right? But here's the more important thing. Forget about whether they were women or not. You have the opportunity when crafting this false story, allegedly 100 years after the fact, to make the first eyewitness be somebody like, I don't know, Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus or somebody who's also dead now, but who would at least give you instant credibility. It's not just that many of the witnesses are just a bunch of fishermen and, and, and uh, unknown women in the first century that didn't have any power. It's that even the authorship of the Gospels is attached to a bunch of nobodies. Like you could argue, okay, well, look, I don't think it's, I don't trust the authorship is really Mark and really John. And really, okay, look, if I'm going to make this stuff up, uh, am I going to make it up? I could use better names than this. I, look, Luke isn't even an eyewitness. Mark is not even an eyewitness. I mean, if I'm going to make this stuff up, I'm going to make it up with somebody who actually has some 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 authority. Some, you know, to the idea that they're making up these accounts and attaching names to it. Well, you're attaching the worst names you could attach to it. Number one, and your witnesses seem to stink. You got other characters in your your narrative that would have more credibility with an audience a hundred years later. Why not have them make key observations? Why not make their? Why, why not have somebody like go? Why not have Pilate go? Wow. You know, this is, I mean, you could do a lot better in the story if you're just going to craft it 100 years after the fact to have it be more uh, influential, to have it be more convincing. Yet they don't. They, they still rely on the simple testimony of a bunch of fishermen and women who had no authority, even though they're surrounded by other characters who did. Very good. Um, we're going to go out to uh, Rhyme His Songs, who's one of our frequent viewers. Uh, she's asking... Uh, a little bit more about your testimony, Jim. Were you convinced by studying the original languages of, of the Bible or English or both? So I, I, I back when I started this, uh, I'm using Logos now, which I think is great. And, you know, I've got, I eventually went to a seminary and got my degree in theological studies, but at, at Golden Gate Baptist, which is now Gateway uh, Seminary, it's out in Ontario. I used to be here in, in Brea. Uh, so anyway, I, it, it was at the time I didn't have that software to use. And I was using something called PC study Bible. So it's one of the earlier pieces of software. Uh, and it was, I it was actually pretty good. I mean, I thought it was pretty decent. It allowed me to do uh, concordance searches. It allowed me to do uh, relationship searches. Uh, I, I felt like it was, it was decent, but I do think you're right. You have to do something. Um, I, I didn't know enough. To, I didn't know where to start. But I knew these weren't the original languages. So I bought and put on my shelves back here every translation. And then I bought a bunch of uh, lexicons. And then I when I, the software was available, maybe a year later, I was able, or two years later, I was able to buy the PC study Bible. And now I'm using Logos, which is fantastic. Um, and so I, was, I, had, I knew that, two things. I needed to get, number one, a better grasp of, of the languages. Number two, I needed to get a better grasp of church history. Because in the end, that's what you're trying to do 
with your cold cases. You're asking, uh, like if you may not recognize what the dialect was in that region of the South Bay of Los Angeles in 1972. And so when that person says something, it maybe it made him, maybe it made sense in 1972, but you're like thinking, I don't know what the heck he's talking about today. So I needed to kind of step back in time. You're going to have to actually find people who lived back in 1972 around the victim or knew the victim well to understand what her statement would have meant. If, if they're going to say, well, she says that to everybody. Okay, well, that's great. When she says that, she really means this. Well, you're trying to do the same kind of thing with ancient texts, right? When that phrase is used or that expression is used, what does it really mean? And so you can only do so much forensic statement analysis when, number one, you're not working in the original language. And number two, um, you may not have a great understanding of why this expression is used. One of the guys who does a great job with this is Craig Keener, right? I mean, his work is amazing. And if you read a, a commentary from Craig on, say, the, his book of Acts commentary, I think is four of all. We have them all here. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like this thick. Yeah. It's ridiculous, okay? I don't know anyone who writes more words in an afternoon than Craig Keener. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how if you've been to his house, his, his entire floor he works on is nothing but filing cabinets and yeah. books he's written. It's just craziest thing you've ever seen. But my point is, you have to do at least a little bit of that. And so I was interested in what the early church fathers were saying. I was interested in what I call a chain of custody. When I see a piece of evidence at a crime scene in 1980, I need to know who collected it, who did he give it to, and then when he gave it to her, who did she give it to, and when they brought it to the lab, who delivered it. It was out of anyone's possession in the meantime. And who do they go to next? That chain link after link will tell me if the evidence has been tampered with. I needed to know, was there a chain of custody for the New Testament? Who had these ideas first? Witnesses. Who did the witnesses give them to? What did they say they were told by the witnesses? When these students of the witnesses passed them on to their students, what did the second generation of students say the first generation of students said? You can do this all the way into the present time. And I want to know, is the story of Jesus changing over time? So there's a lot of stuff you can do um, that you work much like a criminal cold case, just working with these gospels. But you would have to know who were the students of these eyewitnesses and what did they stay as, say historically? Did they write anything? Has it survived? Can I read it? Well, now you're looking at ancient church fathers, all the Antonicene fathers. You're reading all their work. Um, so you're doing a lot of, of, of work uh, that is based in kind of grounded in history, but I'm not looking at it from a historical perspective as much as I'm looking at it from an evidential custody perspective. Well, the, um, we have another question. I'm gonna get to it just now, but I don't want to lose my train of thought. It makes me think about, um, progressive Christianity and mm -hmm. how, you know, like if we're looking all the way back to what the author's original intent was and who were the eyewitnesses and what did they mean? And now when we look at some of the changes that we, or the, at least I see in progressive yes. Christianity, I'm kind of yes. like, Oh, you know, I wonder what that really meant or where did they get off of, you know, the, the track or when you're talking about like yes. that chain of command or um, chain of custody, chain of custody. Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. who, who held it improperly at some point, because it seems like, you know, it was, it was one way and it was being held and carefully um, handled up until a certain point. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Right. I I don't know Here's the deal. You know that this was, as it was spoken by Jesus, he knew it was going to be unpopular. He knew as he spoke the truth that it was going to be unpopular. And this is why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely accuse you because of me. 
He doesn't say, well, you know, you should probably abandon this, this teaching, maybe modify the teaching to his, to his, no, he says, rejoice and be glad that they are persecuting you and insulting you and falsely accusing you because you, that's going to happen. And by the way, if, if you aren't speaking the words of God into the lives of people in such a way that they're getting angry with you, not that we should be, that should be our purpose is to make people angry. But the point is we sometimes want to get along and we want to be liked and we don't want to be insulted on Twitter because we hold an antiquated old fashioned outdated version of marriage, of sexuality, of, 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 of gender, of moral, whatever it may be. Uh, Jesus knew these were going to be unpopular notions. They were unpopular. His teaching was unpopular in his day. Mm -hmm. and, and he told us it was going to be unpopular, but we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. He says the very next line is you're the salt of the earth. By the way, he said, rejoice and be glad because this, this is how the prophets who came before you were treated. Those prophets who came before Jesus, they were persecuted because they spoke the words of God into a fallen world of humans. And anytime you do that, speak God's words into a fallen world, you're going to get pushback. And if you're not getting pushbacks, probably because you've misinterpreted the teaching of Jesus. And, and this, this is the problem we have. Young people, I want them to know that, look, uh, I want to embrace difficulty. I want us to see that that hardship and, and being unpopular on these issues is actually a badge of courage. Uh, because unless we see it this way, if we think that the end is that we are supposed to have the best life now and not be persecuted, insulted, and falsely accused, because that's the promise from Jesus. And then the very next line, what does he say? You're the salt of the earth. If the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? You know, it's good for nothing, right? Except to be thrown out and trampled under feet by men, right? You know, you're the light of the earth. You know, a city set on a hill, it can't be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, right? But it, on a lampstand, and it lights all who are in the house, he says. So let your light shine before men in such a way they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's what he says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, to me, that's, that's a challenge. It means that we have to remain salt and light, even though it's going to cost us, we're going to be insulted persecuted, and falsely accused. So if we're not doing those things, if, if this is a comfortable faith system that nestles right in with culture as it is today in 2020, you're probably doing it wrong. Oh, you're preaching good now. <laughs> Come on. That's, that's super helpful because I think that this chain of custody issue is, Jim's putting it in different words than I do, but it's the same idea of, understanding the roots of our faith and how has our faith been historically taught mm -hmm. and, and preserving that. And we are part of that chain of custody. Now, Jim, I'm wondering maybe if you can talk to us a little bit about the importance of the resurrection. Um, you know, does it really matter that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, you know, like the old hymn, like, Maybe he just kind of rose in my heart. He, how do I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Maybe that's enough. Do I really need to be chasing after this idea that he really did rise from the dead? 
Well, there's there's an interesting, weird notion in Christianity that I think is powerful, and it's that we are not, we are dualistic creatures. We are both, we are bodies and souls. We are souls that have a body, and the body is venerated in Christianity in a way that it isn't in other theological systems. Remember, we are not just going to be uh, as spiritual beings uh, with God as a spirit in heaven uh, and eternity. We are told we are going to be reunited to a resurrection body. Although that body will be different as a seed is to the, to the final flower, right? It'll be different kind of body, but we will have a physical body that we will be reunited with the resurrection body. And that word for body is pretty clear in the new Testament. So the question becomes, why, why do we need to, why does, why does, why does God care about our bodies? There is something about who we are as, as finite creatures that, that, that is different than God, who is, does not have a body. And we, have, we are bodily creatures. And what Paul tells us in First in Corinthians, he says, hey, if we haven't been telling you the truth about the resurrection, we have been lying to you. We have been false witnesses. And you have no hope of your own resurrection body. You have no hope of your own resurrection. If the resurrection is not true for Jesus, not only that, but you've also been lied to. You're to be pitied because you, you bought the lie. So in the end, I, I think this the resurrection is critical because it's the most important foundational evidential claim of Christianity. If the resurrection didn't occur, who cares about Jesus? He's just another smart guy in the ancient world. There's lots of smart guys in the ancient world, but none of them rose from the grave except for Jesus. He's in a different category because he did something that Muhammad and Buddha and Joseph Smith, nobody else did this. This is what makes him different. It's his deity. You know, God did not come and send a man to take our punishment on a cross. That would be brutal. That's not who God is. God came and took the punishment that we deserved. The deity of Christ is an essential claim of Christianity. And in the end, the resurrection demonstrates the deity of Christ. So I think that that this the resurrection itself, but why? But, but look, even when young people wonder why they feel that why this Gen X or Gen Z generation feels like it's the loneliest generation, they report that they're the loneliest generation when they have more access to their friends on digital media and on digital platforms than any other generation has ever had in the history of mankind. How is it that they feel so lonely? Well, one of the reasons why they feel so lonely, I think, is because they, we are created as dualistic creatures, spirit, mind, and brain, soul, and body. And when you're not in the physical presence of others, don't you feel it in this coronavirus quarantine? Don't you feel a certain sense that, yeah, although we can do this and we can get on YouTube, there's a sense of loneliness, a detachment that's not satisfied in any of this this is not face-to-face. This is image-to-image. Face-to-face requires a face, okay? And unless you're in face-to-face contact with people, you will always have a sense of loneliness because you are created this way. And that veneration of the body, that the body is not, it's, it's uh, Nancy Pierce has got a great book. It's called Love Thy Body. It's her last book, right? Great book. Because she talks about how that body you were given by God is, is, not, is not unimportant. It's of, of premier importance and that you're to love your body. And that has certain outcomes and behaviors, certain outcomes and notions about sex and marriage and gender and all those other things. And she unpacks that in the book. But what's important to realize is that under the Christian worldview, the body is a, a, an important feature of who you are. And, and the resurrection of the body is going to be an important feature of who we will become. 
What would you say to people or Christians who would say like, you know, looking for evidence really goes against the idea of faith and living by faith? Well, of course, like every philosophical or theological discussion, uh, this is going to come down to definitions. So we use the word faith and we just toss it out there like all of us embrace the same notion of faith. But if by faith you mean believing in things for which I have no evidence, that has never been the notion of faith that Christianity proposes. Look, even in the, before Jesus came, uh, in the, when the Jews were leaving the exodus from, from Egypt, and then they're wandering in the desert, and they're constantly wandering away, it seems like, right? And, and what is God calling them to do? To come back and remember what I did for you in Egypt. I did something miraculous for you to get you across the Red Sea. And that evidence should help you to move forward. I want you to take a step for me, not blindly, based on what I've already done for you. This is why Jesus works miracles before he makes proclamations. Because as Peter says in, in, in the first or second chapter of Acts, Jesus was a man attested to you by miracles. You should have listened to him. He proved who he was. He performed those miracles as a way to show, to attest to his deity. And that's why his words should have mattered to you. He rose from the grave. He's not just who you thought, who you thought he was. And, and so, so, again, that, if that's what we mean, what we mean is I'm going to ask you to take a step to trust me because I've done something that demonstrated I am who I said I was. That's different. Because in the end, then, I want to spend some time helping people to see that the resurrection actually occurred because that's the thing he did in the past that demonstrated you can trust him for the future. It's kind of the same way as God doing something at this red sea that then demonstrates you can trust me in the desert. That's so good. That is good. I mean, if we was in black church, I'd just be fanning you. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I would. That's good. Now, our friend Nikki, who's a frequent uh, viewer, she says she was saying how much she enjoys your books, Jim. And, um, enjoy sharing the concepts that you present in your books to others. But oftentimes she, she, it sounds like she gets a little discouraged. She says, maybe I'm too technical. Uh, People tell me, I think about things too deeply or that most people uh, don't want to talk about these things that I bring up about evidences for faith. Usually I say, I think our conversation is too light. Um, You know, and I think that Nikki's not alone in that. Like some of us who want to engage in evidence oriented discussions about our faith, you just laid out the case there so beautifully. Do you have any advice for those of us who do struggle when when our friends just say, oh, that stuff's too deep. I'm just not interested. Well, I'll I'll bet you and this is a sad truth, I think, but I'll bet you a lot of times the people who would say they're not interested are more the Christians than they are the skeptics. Mm. Um, and we, I, we kind of find this to be the case that, that we have we have kind of in, so, in some ways we have corrupted a notion. We are not the most thoughtful group and we should be. But we have a system that, that Jesus told us was thoughtful from the very beginning that we can worship God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind. But I, I find that sometimes people are like, I'm already, I don't need that. I don't want to. That's, that's too. Now, if I'm a skeptic who's like, no, I don't believe that there's any reason to default to God because I think the universe can explain itself. 
Well, now that's a person you can actually engage and they probably have some, you can ask the question, well, how do you, why do you feel that? What do you mean by I can take care of itself? And then two, why do you think that's true? You can ask good questions of those folks. I'll bet you if you go back and look at your own conversations with your friends and family, the people who are probably the least interested in talking about evidence for Christianity were more likely Christians than non-Christians. For example, it's awfully hard. I get all the time people will say, well, my church is not interested in doing apologetics. That's too difficult, like you'll say, you know, or it seems like um, it's inconsistent with our notion that, you know, that we don't think that, 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 um, that, that, that humans have a capacity to, it's all God's work. Well, yeah, of course it's all God's work. But look, that's the case. Do I ever need to preach the gospel? No, don't say anything about the gospel. Don't even talk about sin and what Jesus did on the cross. Because if God can do it all the way, take it all the way from the, you know, one goal line to the other, then you don't need to say anything. But you think, no, no, actually, God does all the work, but I need to say something. Okay, I'm just suggesting the thing you're going to say, if you're smart, is going to be some evidentially-based version of the gospel. You're going to get to the gospel, of course. But for me, you could never preach the gospel to me. I was like, that. it came in, it just deflected, I, whatever. I don't, it's noise. It's, I don't want to hear it. Because I don't believe your Bible. And I don't know why you would believe your Bible. Why the heck do you believe in that Bible? Ask that of most Christians. They're like, well, it's the word of God. Okay, great. Because it says it's the word of God. By the way, my Mormon family thinks that their book of Mormon is the word of God. Are they right too? My Baha'i friends think that the writings of Baha'u'llah are the word of God. Is he right? I mean, <laughs> everyone thinks their stuff is the word of God. So I don't really care. Now, at some point, you're going to have to bridge that divide. Help people uh, break down the wall that they've constructed between you and the gospel, between them and the gospel. And that's all I'm suggesting we do. Now, I can tell you that if we're going to start to talk about, well, you know, if you're considered the ontological argument for God's existence, well, then you're probably going to get a lot of people who are going to go, that's a little bit much for me. All right. But what you can do is ask good questions and ask the question, what is the one thing that you're like, well, you would need to, 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 to satisfy to, or to, to reconcile in order to believe in the existence of God? Like, what is it that's keeping you from believing this? Now, that's, that's good because that's their personal story. And again, you may have in your mind 18 different ways that you could go apologetically to resolve any crisis that comes up, any question that comes up. They don't care about those things. They just want their question answered. So find out what their question is, and then you're in a position to answer it. And you're only going to use 1 18th of your catalog, okay? I get it. But the point is, uh, better to start with what they are troubled by and resolve it or try to resolve it put a stone in their shoe move them a little move them five feet toward first base yeah you know, just just do a little bit to move the conversation along and you'll have time to re to, to engage the next question later i, I we, we constantly talk about this you do not need to beat yourself up if you can't get someone to drop to their knees and accept christ as lord in the first 15 minutes i've been talking to my dad about this for 20 years so, so you have time and you take the time to move people on incremental steps. Yeah. And, and again, if, if probably if it feels like it's too much is because we're offering too much. Uh, if, if you want to just, just, just answer the questions they ask and you'll, you'll feel that people don't feel overwhelmed by that. I think um, Nikki's responding to some of the things you're saying. She says, most, you're right. Most of these conversations are happening at church for her. Yeah. And she says she goes to a 2,500 member church she teaches apologetics classes, but her last class, she only had two people in the, in the class before that she had five. And I know it can be very discouraging when you feel like nobody's in these, this space where, where you right. are. And okay. So here's one thing you can do. The importance of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, you, basically what's happening here is you, you say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach an apologetics class starting on Sunday, May 5th. Nobody comes. Yeah. I'm going to show you, uh, starting on Monday, May 5th, how, how many of you guys all have junior hires? Okay, you've, you've noticed that they're starting to drift. Your high schoolers are less interested in church than before. Come on May 5th, I'm going to show you how you can keep, keep your kids in the faith. Now, you're going to do apologetics there because that's how they're going to keep their kids in the faith. But if you call it apologetics, good luck with that. It's felt need, right? Yeah. You don't have the felt need that they need to learn apologetics. But it turns out that, that 70% of skepticism that, that young people will offer about why they are no longer identify as Christians, 70% of it or so are intellectual, uh, at least they're voiced as intellectual doubts. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure that's always the case, but they're voicing them that way. About 30% they're voicing as relational issues with people at church. I think that's so, a really important point, though, because when I was teaching a class at my church, I first did a class for high schoolers. I didn't say it was an apologetics class. And this is just a little tip for you, Nikki, or anyone else who's watching. You know, I did it as, hey, do you have questions you wish you could ask? And it was a it was a questions club. Perfect. And it was like, this is an open forum. You can ask any question about God or real life and how God relates to your life. And they could come and then inevitably the questions that would come forward were quote unquote apologetics questions. But we didn't really talk about it from that point of view. I didn't say, hey, come to an apologetics club. That's right. It was come to a big questions club. Yeah, and perfect. then when that's I a, taught an adult class, I did a very similar thing. It was a basic class in theology and apologetics, but I didn't call it that. I just called it, it we're going over the big cultural questions of our time and how the Bible connects with it. Well, I yeah, think perfect. part yeah. of it is that I like for me, I, um, I entered church at 15, but now even being an adult, like who has given the permission to ask the questions? You know, it's like, if you're just going to church and church runs the same way, I don't know, like if the, if the pastor sometimes isn't giving that permission and saying, Hey, we should be talking about this. I don't know that people just kind of organically say, Hey, we're, you know, can I, can I ask these other questions? Yeah. So I think it is important that people um, say, Hey, you know, it's okay. Let's have a questions club because these questions are normal. And even though you're probably asking them in the background, cause I had a lot of questions in the background, but didn't know that it was okay to ask because yeah. I didn't want it to appear that I was doubting my faith. Yeah. You know, and Monique didn't know that apologetics was even a thing until about a year and a half ago. And I drug her to the rethink conference down in Orange oh, County. And she was like, good. what is this? <laughs> I know. And you see what's happening. That, that's a great example though, of why it, look at the energy level of students these are students at Rethink conferences, uh, student apologetics conferences. Uh, they're just, it's crazy, the level of energy and enthusiasm. And this thing continues to grow exponentially. It's just, it's nuts. We started that conference with, I think, 600 attendees and felt like, wow, that was woohoo. You know, how many, eight years later, we're now looking at uh, almost 3,000. Yeah. So, so I think you, you see that there is a, um, uh, a real hunger on the part of young people. And what you said was just, uh, brilliant in terms of calling it a questions club or, or talking about tackling some of the top uh, tough issues. Cause in the end, it's what's going to, if almost every uh, bit of research that's out there in which a surveyor is uh, surveying where young people stand uh, as far as their beliefs and why they're no longer Christians, 
someone in the, one of the respondents will say, I had a bunch of questions and I went to my leadership at the church. And to be honest with you, they, they really didn't know how to answer my questions. And, and they even said, Hey, that's just the kind of thing you just need to have faith about. So they felt like there weren't good answers that were offered by leadership. So we can do better than that. Right. And a lot of times I totally get it. Look, I've been a pastor. I've been a lead pastor. That is not an easy job. And if you think that just, just, it's not just the gifting of teaching that's required, it's about four or five other gifts you have to have to do that job well. And not everyone has all of those gifts. So I will tell you that that is a job that if I thought I could trust somebody to do this side of it for me, um, I would be happy to let somebody do it just because, uh, you know, look, you've got a lot of things to think about. As a, a pastor is like the, the, the lamest job, I swear, because it's just so hard. It's so all-encompassing, and we put so much. And then we're like, "Hey, why doesn't my pastor do this extra thing that I'm interested in?" You know, yeah. and every one of us has got an extra thing that we're interested in. So my heart goes out to anybody who's trying to, to spin that plate. Let's have some grace. Yeah. And, and and every one of you says, "Hey, you know, my church doesn't do it the way I'd like to do." When it comes to apologetics, well, get over it. Okay, this is every church. I don't care what version of church you're in; they're all incredibly beautiful and incredibly ugly at the same time. Yeah, because they're all filled with humans. Mm -hmm. I've been a part of churches that are the size of like 30,000. And I've been a part of churches that are 250 on staff in both of those churches. And I've led a church of my own that was no bigger than 50 ever. Yeah. We kept it at that or less. And I will tell you that every one of those churches had great things and had difficult things. Yeah. There is no perfect church. Uh, we're again, it's because we're, we're ugly, imperfect, limited, finite people. So, so I think what we need to do is to say, Hey, I'm going to do the best I can to improve in this one area, given my gifting. And I'm not going to complain all the time about what my pastor is not doing. That's right. That's some straight talk right there. That's good. Cause what I did at my church, when I saw the youth pastor, you know, there wasn't really an apologetics component. I went to the youth pastor and said, how can I help? Would, right. would it be okay with you if I organized something would you help me promote it to the youth? And, you know, would you give me a space to meet in? I'll do all the work. I'll do all the publicity, but will you help me? And he was very grateful for the help because right. then it, it, it relieved a burden off him. One thing he didn't have to worry about doing. And then I could not be in an offense with him that there was no apologetics happening in the youth meetings. And right. Now, listen, I think that, that sometimes one of the things you get credit for as a leader is you're a team builder. And so if, 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 if pastors can see themselves as building teams and that there's a great value in that, and that shows what a good leader they are, not that they're doing all five things, but they, they've built a team of five to do those five things yeah. that you get credit for that. So I always encourage pastors. And I think, look, that the, the way in all of you who are struggling to figure out how to get apologetics or Christian case making, as I call it, into your local congregations, you're going to do it through the door of youth ministry. And sometimes what that looks like is, hey, can I help? Not, I have this idea for how I want to bend your youth ministry in this direction. Exactly. No one receives that well. Yeah. No. What do you need? Oh, I just need this thing over here where I need more drivers on our, our things. Okay, well, that's not what I'm thinking. I want to do apologetics. But no, you're going to do that thing for a year for this youth pastor. Yep. And at the end of that time, you're going to take a small step in the direction you want to go because now he trusts you. Yes. And so it might be that you know, for a, a year, you're just hosting Wednesday night meetings. You're not teaching there. You're hosting, giving him a place where he can teach. And you're going to be thinking, man, I wish this guy would teach apologetics. 
But you know what? You're just going to do what you're called to do and help. And at some point, because you've earned the trust of a leader, you're going to get a chance to do something. Or he's going to say, you know what? I can't make it on Wednesday. I'll, I'll teach for you. I'm hosting it anyway. Yeah. And now you got your chance to do something. And by the way, what you're going to discover is that you're not very good at it yet because we're, we're, none of us are any good at it at first. Yeah. And so what's great is that God is gracious and he gives us one meeting every six months with the junior high group right. to, to fly, you know, to just kind of spread our wings. And then we, we, we bounce off of that and we go, that doesn't go very well. And we, we do some, make some changes and we get better. So lucky for me, I spent, you know, seven or eight years with audiences that wouldn't, you know, I wasn't on a stage. I wasn't writing a book. I didn't have a national audience. I had an audience of 15 junior hires. You can mess up there. Hardly anyone's going to notice. It's okay. It's a good place to start. So I would say that if you can think about joining your church's work at the youth pastor level and just do what's needed. That, that is some that straight talk right there, mm -hmm. Jim, because boy, I'm just amening with you all the way. I, I think that's so important to be a servant first, to be faithful in the little things. I labored in anonymity for 15 years to small groups, maybe speaking once or twice a year, doing really like not good presentations, but learning what worked, what didn't, improving over time. And then people are like, wow, you're such a great teacher. I'm like, yeah, but I was a really bad teacher for a really long time. And I had to learn. And, and you know, there's being faithful in those little things. You have to, the beginning, sure. start with, preparing a lesson for five people and yep. getting better. And yep, so true, you know, so I want to let you go, Jim. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, and I want to sure. let people know how they can get connected yes. to you. Uh, Cold case Christianity is his website. You can go to his book on um, there's your, there's your website. Go subscribe to Jim's website. He sends out the most helpful updates and you can get connected to some free offers and, Monique will appreciate this. Jim has case making materials for kids. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah. he is doing some great things. Uh, one of our frequent viewers, Jeremy, says that he's used your st stuff with middle schoolers at his church. Awesome. It's been so helpful to them. Mm. Um, yeah, so great. I want to commend everyone to go check out Jim's ministry. If you want to kind of start at the beginning, his book, Cold Case Christianity, is a really good place to start. So, yes. Thank you so much. This has been so good. Thanks, guys. It's a, I appreciate both of you. Just, uh, just a joy to finally, I mean, we had a little bit of a tough start getting our technology over, but yeah. look, we conquered the technology, so yes. it must be important. Thank you so much for your grace, Thank Jim. You. And Thank we you. really appreciate your ministry. All right. God bless. Bye. All right, see you later. Bye-bye. All right. All righty. Jim Wallace, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. That was Can you imagine the Lord's favor to us? Yes. On on this our little humble show. That was so cool. Broadcasting live from our living room. That was so <laughs> cool. I'm so glad that we got to do that and talk to him and Yeah, and get some evidence like, for the resurrection. Great and, advice, ministry advice, yeah. Nikki. That was just for you. <laughs> that was awesome. Okay, so let's talk about you know, no episode these days would be complete without a little coronavirus antics there's that so allison said that was awesome good yes we are in total agreement yes total agreement <laughs> yes very good uh amy was asking about um conferences and i do want to mention this uh amy if you 
Uh, the best like local conference that that Jim and I were talking about there is the Rethink Conference. It happens every fall in Orange County. My friends from Stand to Reason, uh, Sean McDowell is a frequent speaker. Jim Wallace is a frequent speaker. Um, it's an amazing conference that you need to round up all the people in your life who are like in their teens and twenties and go take them down to the rethink conference. It is fantastic. And you are going to want to get the people, the young people in your life Mm -hmm. hooked up with rethink. So I can't believe we, we went to the very first one. They first launched in California and now they're like in multiple states. They're in four or five states. So amazing. So excited for my friends at Stand a Reason and the space that they are in, um, in bringing thoughtful evidences. So if there's a Rethink conference near you, go Check round up your young people and go to that. That and Stand a Reason is a free plug. There you go, Greg, my old seminary pal. <laughs> so, all right. So let's talk about the coronavirus. Okay. <laughs> Here it is. Here it is. Oh, yeah. 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 So I saw this in, um, actually a friend posted this okay. on Facebook and it says Asian Americans call for, call on the church to preach against coronavirus racism. This was in Christianity today. Mm-hmm. Christianity today. And there was some back and forth on, on the thing. And I was like, okay, but what is the bigger, you know, so, so issue? What's going on so here? Like, that's what the, I was. What's the connection between racism and coronavirus? Well, because it, it, the epicenter, um, and place of where it started was in Wuhan, China. Okay. Right. A lot of Chinese Americans, um, Chinese immigrants are experiencing, um, discrimination or racism around the world. Hmm. And so there's been a call from Chinese Christians to have people speak out against racism, against the Chinese in their churches. So because it originated in China, Chinese people now are experiencing some discrimination. Discrimi- it's like they've like what, been. What does that look like practically? They're in Texas, a, a family was this. stabbed, okay, um, including like a two year old, a mother. And I want to say there was another person in the family that was stabbed um, in London. There have been Chinese people who've been like beat up and spat on and all that in Paris there was issues Paris has um like this new hashtag now and I don't know anything Emily's about the French but Emily right could here. pronounce it Emily, for us come, who knew because she speaks French so she's gonna come pronounce the hashtag for us yeah seriously yeah there, there's that one she's right here on the stairs our stairs are right here <laughs> all right what is this yeah so it, in the English translation is we are not the virus. So whatever okay. happened in in France became so bad or so stigmatized that the Chinese there and it's not just Chinese. It's people who are of any Asian region because people are, you know, getting confused. Like, I don't know, Japanese, Chinese, Korean, like people, Asian Americans are at least here anyway, experiencing more um, discrimination and assault. And so, so in these news stories, the stabbing, you know, this sort of thing is the thought train that they're going to attack Chinese people or Asian people because they're responsible for the, they're responsible for the virus. There's fear. We don't want you to give it to us. Um, I saw on Twitter 
this lady, and of course it was Walmart, but this lady in Walmart and she was just yelling at this one elderly Chinese woman who was just in there looking at things on the shelf and, you know, telling her she shouldn't touch those things. And, you know, she's now... she might have the Rona. Uh-huh. Okay. And, you know, she's now the reason why things are being contaminated and all of that. And so with all of this... This is really sad. It's really sad. But, I mean... It also doesn't help when you hear things like the Chinese virus. You know, that's a form of discrimination. It's it's when we are now lining people up to be demeaned based on something that we attribute to their ethnicity. You know, so I was I was really intrigued by this article just because of the whole racism aspect and considering how we as Christians should treat people and should, um, you know, honor their their dignity, value, and worth. Right, because all humans being created in the image of God, we see them as having equal dignity and, and equal value. So this idea of, you know, what we call in modern terms xenophobia, mm-hmm. you know, this, this prejudice against people certain, from other countries, certain people. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of that is like, hey, Christians need to be a vocal advocate a, a, against that yes. that demeaning behavior. Yeah. Okay. How do we treat others? Um, and when we when we look at, you know, the scriptures, the first thing that we talked about was, you know, treating other people how we want to be treated. Yes. You know, we don't we wouldn't want some disease to be um, associated with our ethnicity. You know, one, two, viruses aren't ethnic, ethnicity specific, sure. you know, so I can. They're equal opportunity they're of equal offenders. They're equal opportunity offenders, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it reminds me of, and Emily and I had a conversation about this of, like, shortly after 9-11, you saw things like Arabs or Muslims, they were all terrorists. Yeah. You know, back in the 80s, um, Haitians were deemed with, like, the HIV so, or it, that whole HIV epidemic, and um, they were seen as they the were seen as, as the source okay. of that, and so a lot of Haitians were targeted. There's being Haitian yourself, being Haitian would, myself, <laughs> a little bit sense, area of sensitivity. Um, and so I just went, began to wonder what is the Christian's responsibility sure. in all of this. And one of the things that, like I just said, it's like treating others how we want to be treated. But it also made me think about. Elisha and um, when he was mourning for Elijah Mm. and he like he had a bald head and the kids made fun of him. And I am not a theologian. So, you know, it's a fairly obscure story in the second Kings. Yes. But um, the kids were making fun of him about his bald head and the bears came and ate them kids. I mean, they tore them apart. (laughs) I'm like, Hey, okay. But for me, what I correlated that to was that there was some sort of mockery, some Mm. sort of demeaning, um, like position in their heart against a physical characteristic of this person. And I look at, when I look at like how we, how people can demean others based on their physical characteristics. So I don't know necessarily, or people don't know necessarily if this person is Chinese, Mm -hmm. you know, or if they are, you know, a Chinese American, 
maybe they've never been to China before in their lives, you know, but because of certain physical characteristics, they are now acting in ways that are derogatory and demeaning and discriminatory. Yeah. So in the example of Elisha, it's kind of an extreme situation where God sent judgment Mm -hmm. almost through the bears Mm -hmm. for them mocking verbally of God's prophet. Um, It reminds me, too, of the words in the book of James where it talks about how uh, we shouldn't uh, pronounce curses over one another because we're created in the image of God. You know, it's, it's in the section on the tongue, the teaching mm-hmm. on the tongue that, that out of our mouth comes praises to God. We sh- but out of our mouth also comes cursings mm-hmm. toward our fellow humans. Such things ought not be yeah. is what the, the apostle says. So, and I think the last thing that it makes me think of is the issue of partiality. Mm, okay. You know, like we don't treat people from other areas um, or people in general differently because a virus was there or because they look a certain way. Like we don't discriminate. We don't show partiality based on anything like that's I mean you have the in Adam and the in Christ you know and there's differences there but as Christians our call is to honor the dignity value and worth of people because they are created in God's image and so if we're not if we're speaking curses over them or if we are speaking in demeaning and derogatory ways over people or mocking mm, them mm -hmm, or scoff what's it called scoffing um You know, like those are things that as Christians, we should not be doing. So it makes me think about um, practically, like, how does this all work? It, it it makes me think about being careful about words that we use, maybe memes that we repost because because people are always watching us, mm-hmm. you know. And so we want to think about what we're saying and understanding um not tying the virus to a particular ethnic group mm-hmm. per se. We're already getting some comments on, on your things. Our friend Amy says, uh, I have a Korean friend who's amazingly wounded by this exact issue. I've invited her to your info meeting this Sunday and I hope she attends. Yay. She said she would be there. So let's talk about, about that. Yes. So should we go into that? And our friend Jeremy says, there's a Chinese American YouTube channel that suggests calling it the CCP virus for Chinese Communist Party virus. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the very thing that you're talking about. Yeah, because it, I mean, like I said, viruses aren't ethnic specific, (laughs) ethnicity specific, you know? And now if we want to talk about what the Chinese government did, okay, fine. Like that's a conversation. It's not a conversation I choose to have, but if you want to have that conversation, you go right ahead. Sure. But that what what the actions of the government were do not represent all of the people who may be Chinese all over the globe. Right. Right. And and that's what's happening. We are associating a virus with a people group all over the globe. And now that is resulting in discriminatory actions toward a people group. And as Christians, in my opinion, we should we can use our voice to step into that space and say, no, that's not how we treat people. That's good. So tell us about your special live stream tomorrow. Tell us well, what you're up to. OK, so the big announcement, she's finally making it. <laughs> 
There's that. Okay, so I'm gonna do a book study group. There um, it is. Yes. Let, let's talk about race. Um, <laughs> yes, that's it. So we're gonna go through the book, The Third Option, by Miles McPherson. It's a good book. Um, it talks about race issues in America and how we're so divided. And what is the third option? So he he presents two options of like, you know, you can be the bad person. I'll just call it the bad person. And, you know, you can be racist or you can be unwilling to hear your neighbor um, and their pain in their racial experiences within the states. Or you can be super passive and just, you know, negate all of the conversations and not really enter into that space at all. Or there can be a third option. And so he explores what the third option is. Um, and so, yes, I, I, I think I'm like 95% on board with the book. I mean, not nothing's perfect. And yeah. <laughs> I have different thoughts on some things and we'll discuss that, but it's really um, to create a space where people can come and say, Hey, you know, this has been my experience. Let's talk about this, what this book says one, but two, just, you know, what are our questions? How do we navigate race in a, a, a nation that's currently so divided, even in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it, it's going to be um, pandemic friendly. Because it will be on Zoom. It will be so on Zoom. people don't need to live in Southern California. They can mm. participate anywhere. And maintain your social distancing. That's right. I like to call it physical distancing. And Monique, you're having an information meeting on tomorrow. On it, Sunday, yes. Tomorrow night. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be, you're inviting people to come and kind of check it out. And find out more about the group, what it's going to be, what it's not going to be. Yes. Because some people might be, you know, an invitation to talk about race for some people is like, let me invite you to an argument. That no. sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, no, no, no that's not so, fun. No, yeah. we will do everything in love. We will use grace. Um, and and that'll be that's like our our premise. Our foundation will be love and grace and it will be safe to to have inquiry. We'll be safe to make mistakes. It will be safe to make mistakes. Okay. Yes. And and that's OK, because I am, you know, making a ton of mistakes or have made a ton of mistakes. The Lord highlights to me all the time issues where I have my own bias or prejudice and things like that. And so I think one of the the founding tenets I want to talk about is the fact that we all experience um, bias. Yeah. We all have it. We all participate with prejudice. And now how do we live with that? How do we work to be different? And how do we work out our own holiness? So who would be a good candidate to, to think about coming to your group? Like, who is this for? Is it for maybe pastors who are interested in multi-ethnic multi ministry? Would it be good for them? To me, it's just good for humans. Like, I, know. I mean, for if you, you everybody because, should be having a conversation about race. Yeah, like, because yeah. I, I kind of feel like, you know, we don't live in a bubble, even though we are quarantined. You know, we don't live our lives in bubbles. We interact with people all the time. And if you're of a certain ethnicity, you might not understand the experience of someone else. And so, like... For me, for me, for example, um, you know, if if a white person says, oh, man, you know, it's so hard for me out there because of X, Y and Z. If I'm only with 
my black friends and we are constantly rehearsing the narrative that we live in, I would look at you and be like, what the heck are you talking about? You got it good. But not understanding how things like critical race theory are impacting, especially older white men, you know, older white heterosexual Christian men. And so I think this is a time to be able to talk back and forth and and get some understanding as to what's happening. Does that make sense? I'm asking because, you know, sometimes I just ramble and then I'm like, (laughs) I don't know. All right. So tomorrow at four o'clock Pacific, um, seven o'clock Eastern. Yeah. On Zoom. It will be on Zoom. So if you go to. Uh, Center for Biblical Unity on Facebook. You can see the Facebook event. And we well, no also time like the president to make some announcements. <laughs> I've been asking you for weeks. Are you going to make the big announcement? Yeah. So um, I really felt like the Lord was saying, you know, the conversation of unity in um, in this season is extremely important, not just necessarily the idea of reconciliation, but unity. And so um, I've taken on. I feel like the the Lord is, I don't know, asked me or charged me. I have no idea. Um, with this idea of a center for biblical unity um, that provides trainings on biblical unity, not just reconciliation, not just, hey, let's have Where's your website. There it is. You know, let's just have all the people at the table just to have all the people at the table. But what does real unity look like? What does the word even mean? Um so in go, the Bible. So, yeah. So go that's follow what I'm doing. Monique's. Uh, remember when she first started the show, she would start off the, the show every week and she'd say, I'm Monique Dusan. I don't have a website. I'm not anybody. Well, here we are. <laughs> here we are a year later. She got a website. We, we were launching her into something. It is a nonprofit. It's going to, um, she's working on her official government pa- papers. It, it's already, it's already formed as a nonprofit. Okay. Now I am working on the back end for the um, tax exemption, but yeah. Two, two um, braids is two braids. I know two braids. I, y'all, I didn't come a long way. Me and Diamond, we didn't come a long way. Um, All right, but so won't he do it? Won't he do it? You won't he will? Exactly. Um, I'm learning the black church lingo. There it is. All right. So we got a lot of comments so here about the, the Chinese time, thing. Um, yeah, time, four o'clock. four o'clock. Now, this is an info session. We will, to give time for people to order the book and for Easter, yeah. we will start the following week after Easter. Yeah. So So, there's that. Okay. So our friend Cynthia says sometimes viruses were named after the place of their origination. She says, I remember the Hong Kong flu. I think that was maybe in the sixties. And of course there was the Spanish flu, which was a hundred years ago. Um, So maybe you can interact about that. She's Nikki says, I wonder if there was as much of an issue with race during the Spanish flu. I was going to, that was going to be my answer. I just don't think that it was this, much of a hotbed. I don't think that race, even though race was a a big thing. um, And I feel like in America, at least it's always been, especially black and white, but I don't think people really dissected it. I don't think critical race theory was as prevalent. I I think there's just a lot more to, um, to really harm people with, especially in like the age of, media and um like facebook and things like that and so yeah i i think that viruses or diseases were named after the places and i think that in today's 
current culture, there's just more harm that's being done in in different ways with those words. Yeah. So Annette says nobody blamed the Germans for the measles because they used to be called the German measles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there there is some precedent there for the country of origin. And then it so, would be the China flu as opposed to the Chinese, which now uh, brings it to the people. That's, I, mean, I think that's a that's a very thoughtful and, and fair point. Amy says uh, conversation is important at this juncture, actual conversation that promotes understanding instead of all the screeching. And let me t- let me make a comment about that, because. I think that some of the things that Monique has planned are extremely groundbreaking. I don't it, it, she's been talking through the things that she has planned for the book study. It is way more than a book study, people. Um, this is a a kind of an, a transformational opportunity for you to come in and have conversations, make mistakes, fall down, figure out um, what to do better. But it's not going to be a group about shaming any one group of people or or negating any um, responsibility by other groups. It's going to be a genuine, how can we as Christians all get on the same page with each other? Mm-hmm. How can we truly love each other in a robust and biblical way? This is not going to be, let's just call everything love and and move on with our lives. Mm-hmm. This is going to be, you know, how can we really start to look at some, some details mm-hmm. of what love looks like? And Monique has some amazing things planned for that group. So I really want to encourage people to come to the info meeting and to sign up for the group. So yay! our friend Jane says she's coming. I'm pretty yes. sure our friend Amy is coming. So go check it out. And um, I will uh, post links again. If you go to the, all the things page, my theology mom page center for biblical unity on Facebook, on yeah. Facebook, you'll find the event invite and all of the details. Okay. Any final comments there? You want to, Look at there, Jeremy. Um, I was just reading Jeremy's comment. It says, that's why CCP virus is so useful, in my opinion. It preserves the fact of where the virus came from while placing the responsibility for the pandemic at the feet of the Chinese government and uh, not the Chinese civilians. Um, And I think my response to that is that what people are doing with that, though, is taking taking the terms and choosing to be discriminatory toward other people or choosing to demean other people. And so in my opinion, as a Christian, I want to do everything that I can not to offend, not to be discriminatory, not to use words that will, um, you know, offend my brother or sister, especially if my brother or sister tells me, hey, that's offensive. And I think that many Chinese Americans anyway, or, you know, um, Chinese People around the globe are saying, hey, this is offensive. This this definitely um, is causing some pain because because there are physical attacks now happening because of this. And so if it's if if the wording is going to lead to discrimination or to attack, I would say that we should definitely kind of separate that from the people. Okay, Uh, our friend Nikki says, because race is such a difficult topic. 
talking so genuinely and opening openly could teach us how how to talk this way about other topics. Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely some potential. Some of the exercises that MoneyCast plan, I think you'll see that could have some broader application to other conversations. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I think we we reached the end and thank you all for bearing with us on the late start. And we hope you enjoyed Jim Wallace and all of our, Um, other antics here i want to leave you with a tweet of the week oh oh we're back to this one yes it's that tweet of the week (laughs) (laughs) that's an oldie but a goodie yes it is All right. Very simple. Our tweet of the week is from Mr. Samuel Say. Samuel, let's have a talk. We really would like to have you on the show. So I'm featuring you as the tweet of the week. I wanted to find a non-coronavirus tweet, and it was very hard, people. Yes. I looked for two hours, and I could not find one. So I found Samuel Say's tweet from earlier today. And it was this him I was singing on our walk a couple of days ago uh, to the girls. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. This is the old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a great tweet. And Samuel, please come on our show. We really would like to have you. This is true. Um, we both enjoy your tweets. That's all. Why do you have 16 un, like, unopened tweets over there? That's, 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 that's oh. Bob's. Oh. oh. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you out there like that. <laughs> just calling him out. I don't check Twitter. Yeah. I don't do Twitter. I just use it when Kristen needs it. So, there it is. All right. All right, my friends. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. You guys have a blessed week. God and see bless. you tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow on the Info live stream. Bye-bye. Bye.